Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on February 21st, 2021, during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is The Sabbath Principle and discusses Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. That's Hebrews chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 to 11, focusing this morning on verses 6 to 11. Hear now the inspired word of God. Therefore, let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we bow before you, uh, we would again very humbly ask that you'd be pleased to bless the preaching And that, Father, that as your word goes forth, it would prick our hearts, prick our consciences, and that, Father, that it would accomplish every purpose for which you send it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, amongst many others, one of the casualties of this COVID COVID-19 pandemic, was the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. The plan now is to hold the Games this August, and still calling it the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. And as you know, the Games draw the world's best athletes. But the Olympic Games are also known for their pageantry, their pomp and circumstance, if you will. And there's always some drama involved with the Olympics. 
And especially with the advent of television, the, the drama of these games has just increased. In 1996, it is estimated that 3.5 billion people watched the closing ceremonies of the Olympics. And each year has its own particular human interest stories, and people watch on the tube as the drama unfolds. And one event that always holds special interest uh, is the 100-meter, the 100-meter dash. Because the winner of that event is said to be the fastest human alive. And the current holder to that title is none other, of course, than Usain Bolt from Jamaica. And, and his reign is undisputed since he won the event in 2008, 2012, and 2016 and holds the current world record. But prior to him, there always seemed to be some controversy surrounding that event. In 1936, Jesse Owens beat the whole competition right in the stadium in Hitler's Germany, uh, causing Hitler to walk out of this, the arena in a huff, much to the delight of the Americans. In 1988, Ben Johnson, a Canadian, wins the 100 meters and then two or three days later has his middle medal stripped from him because he tested positive for steroids. But in 1924 was possibly the biggest controversy surrounding this. When a young Scotsman by the name of Eric Liddell who was considered Britain's best chance for a gold medal, he caused quite a ruckus when he refused to run the race. And why? Because it was to be run on the Sabbath day. Eric Liddell was born to missionary parents in China, was a devout Christian with a great Christian testimony, and he believed that it would violate the scriptural command to keep the Sabbath to run his race on that day. And, and his decision sparked quite a controversy in, in England and, and caused many of his countrymen to get extremely angry with him. But we don't hear too many stories like this anymore. We live in a time when the Sabbath principle is looked upon as being a relic from a more, quote, quaint time, unquote. And the Sabbath principle has little or no relevance and impact on our society today. Even among many Christians, the Sabbath day is for going to church in the morning and then the rest of the day is just free time. I can do whatever I please. Most major athletic competitions are scheduled now on Sundays, specifically for Sundays, when they can garner their biggest audience. Other than church attendance on Sunday morning, there is very little difference between the Christian and the non-Christian on Sundays, broad-based. Now, why is this? And a and, uh, follow-up question to that is, how important is the Sabbath principle uh, for today? Our study in Hebrews brings us to a very, a very interesting portion of Scripture that addresses the subject of God's rest. And in this portion of scripture, the Sabbath principle is used in the writer's warnings to his fellow countrymen to strive to enter God's rest. Now, I have to say up front, we, 
we understand that that's not his primary purpose here in, in Hebrews is to, to tell you you need to, to observe the Sabbath. That's one of the examples he gives. But if we understand what he's saying and how he applies the Sabbath principle, I believe it will shed some light on the questions that we may have about the Sabbath day in the present age. First, let's briefly review what we've studied just to bring the context together. First, uh, Hebrews is a book written to the first century Jewish Christians. And it is a warning to them not to lapse back into the Jewish ceremonial laws and thereby rejecting Christ. And in this portion, the writer has compared Christ with Moses. He has shown that Christ is superior to Moses in every way. Therefore, if you listen to Moses, you should pay more attention to Christ. Moses was a servant in the household of God, but Jesus is the very son of God. And in chapter 3 and 4, the writer has issued some, some strong warnings uh, to these Christians he's writing to based on their experience of their fathers in the wilderness. And he has quoted from Psalm 95 uh, to show the urgency of his warnings and the extreme, the extreme danger of unbelief. And just as God swore in his wrath that those disobedient Israelites who followed Moses in the desert would not enter his rest, that warning has even greater significance in the new covenant. In verse 5, uh, the writer quotes those ominous words again. He swore, they shall not enter my rest. So with that in mind, look at verses 6 and 7 of the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now notice, not all Israelites were disobedient and, and perished in the wilderness. Some, some did enter his rest. Joshua and Caleb believed God and entered the promised land of Canaan. And the promise was sure to all who believed, who believed God. The difference between obeying God and disobeying God was the condition of the heart. It was unbelief versus belief. Therefore, the admonition that we keep seeing in this book of Hebrews is don't harden your hearts. Do whatever you have to do to avoid this tragic mistake that we see the Israelites back in the days of Moses. Because God will deal severely with all those who do not believe. And so he says again, remember your fathers in the wilderness. God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. These are extremely strong words, but some did. So based on these historical facts, the writer says the promise remains today. It is good for all men of all times who have lived on this earth. And the day that is fixed to grab hold of this promise is always the same, he says. It's today. We don't just look back and see the wonderful, wonderful things God did for Israel in the wilderness. 
The promise to enter his rest is for today. So don't harden your hearts as the Israelites did, and consequently they fell in the wilderness. But believe today and enter God's rest. Then the writer continues in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Joshua had been given the job to lead the Israelites into the promised land after Moses had died. And entering the land was the fulfillment of the promise, the promised rest of God. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10. It says, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. And Joshua declared that this was fulfilled. John 22, verse 4. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers. But while the promise of God was fulfilled, we see that there is a greater significance to the promise than just rest in Canaan. There is a greater rest. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There is another day. Uh, The promise of rest was to Joshua, but David also speaks of a day of rest long after they had entered the land of Canaan. Uh, We've read about this in Psalm 95. We've read Psalm 95 two or three times over the last few weeks. And now the writer to the Hebrews says that it's still true in first century Israel. The rest in Canaan was but a symbol or a type of a greater rest. Oh, and, and by the way, let me just interject a little bit here, because uh, I won't have time in the rest of the service, but the Sabbath day has great eschatological symbolism. That's for another time. But don't miss that. The rest in Canaan was but a symbol or a type of a greater rest, and that rest is the spiritual rest. It is a rest that Joshua could not give them. As, a, as great a leader and as a godly, godly a man as he was, Joshua could not give them this ultimate rest. So we see that long after they received the rest in the promised land, God continually speaks of another rest. And that promise is still valid today. Look at verse 9. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And while the principle has been present in the whole section, we're looking at the writer uses the word Sabbath for the first time here. The the rest that remains is called a Sabbath rest. And again, this is most important. The Sabbath principle remains for New Covenant believers. All of the terms that he could have used the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has chosen to call it a Sabbath rest. The the Sabbath day of rest is an emblem or a symbol 
of our eternal rest in God. Uh, to the Hebrew Christian of the first century, the, the Sabbath day was, was extremely significant, especially in the context of the exodus and, and the promise of the land of Canaan. It was during this time of wandering in the wilderness that God gave the Israelites the manatee. That's why we read from Exodus chapter 16 earlier today. Remember, they're grumbling. They, they don't have food and they're grumbling against Moses. And we see the Sabbath principle at play where when they gather the manna, that they're told on, on the day before the Sabbath to gather twice as much. They went out on the Sabbath day. It wasn't going to be there. And so we see this principle of this Sabbath day even before the Ten Commandments was given. And then, of course, we see it right in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God placed such a high priority on the Sabbath that it's included in his moral law a law that is binding on all men of all ages, of all times. But notice something in this fourth commandment. God gives the reason for his inclusion of the Sabbath command as a moral command. For in six days, the Lord made heavens and earth. It is representative of the rest that God gave at the end of the sixth day. It is part of God's design for man. It is part of the creation order. And that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews reminds his brothers in verse 10 of this fourth chapter. In verse 10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Here is where many people make a big mistake about the Sabbath. They treat, they treat the Sabbath as though it was only part of the ceremonial law. They look at it as though it is in the same category as the man on eating pork or making a garment out of wood, wool and linen. Now it certainly is, there are certainly ceremonial aspects, but it is part of the moral law. God instituted the Sabbath command before there was ever sin in this world, which is important. At the end of the sixth day of creation, God declared that everything was good, and then he rested. And he declared the seventh day was a holy day. It was to be set apart from all other days for some very particular purposes. And because God rested on this day, we are to follow his example and rest on this day as well. What does it mean when we are told that the Sabbath day is a day of rest. Well, of course, it means cessation, cessation from work. And we're told very specifically that we are to work for six days, rest on the seventh. But that's, that's only part 
It means we are to find our rest in God. It is a symbol of what will become a full reality in the next life. Then we will rest in God completely and fully. Now we rest in part. It is a day when we turn our hearts from all other thoughts and distractions and and rest in the blessed sacredness of the presence of God. It is a day when we turn our hearts from all other thoughts. So this earthly Sabbath is a picture of the eternal rest, the eternal Sabbath rest in God. And in this fallen world, it means that we are to cease first and foremost from sinning and rest in God. And that too is a picture of the eternal rest when we will sin no more because we will be with him, we will see him face to face. But the writer admonishes us once again. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Just as we practice the earthly Sabbath rest, as incomplete as it may be, we are to strive to enter that eternal Sabbath rest of God. Look at verse 11. Look at the words again. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Christian, don't take your salvation for granted. Be but diligently strive to make it sure. The the Christian is admonished to make his calling and election sure. 2 Peter verse 1, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, an older commentary, said this, There is no attitude more dangerous for the church than that of unconcern and complacency. See, while salvation is a free gift of God, it is demonstrated in the life of the believer by striving to please God. And it is demonstrated by a life of toil and effort to do God's will. The writer to the Hebrews in this whole section has continually warned us That the person who sits back comfortably and says, I'm saved and safe, is just the one who is in danger of falling. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall. Through following the same example of disobedience. And again, this is obviously a reference back to Psalm 95, which the writer quoted in chapter 3. And then repeated in verse 1 of this chapter, let us, therefore let us fear, while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you seem to have come 
short of it. The person who comes short of eternal rest is the person who has not really been saved at all. He has deceived himself. We know that the heart is deceitful. It is wicked above all else. See, many Jews believed that they were saved just because they were the seed of Abraham. Many Christians believe that they are saved because they are members of the right church. Perhaps they raised their hand at an evangelistic rally or perhaps walked down an aisle. The assurance you have of your salvation is the constant striving for godliness. It is the pursuit of holiness. And look at the last phrase. Through following the same example of disobedience. The writer to the Hebrews is pointing back to their fathers once more. And he says, if you follow after your father's disobedience, then you can expect the same consequences. Just as they fell in the desert and never entered the rest of God in Canaan, you will fall short of eternal rest. And that same admonition is true for us. The promise of God is timeless. It was true for Adam and Eve. It was true for Noah in his day. It was true for the Israelites in the wilderness. It was true for the first century Hebrew Christians. And it is true for you and I today. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, we, we've been examining the primary meaning of this passage. Uh, this is clearly to warn the person who knows the truth not to take it for granted. To admonish you to make certain that you do not fall short of the eternal rest of God. That's the admonition. But there's another application that I want to address before we close this morning. I want you to consider the Sabbath principle and how it applies in our society. I believe that the poor teaching in general in the, the church across America today but specifically on the Sabbath principle is responsible for many problems that we experience in the church today. Significantly contributing to the decline of holy living in the lives of church members today. I further believe that it has contributed to the loss of effectiveness of the church in advancing the kingdom of God. As I read the Bible, I see that the consistent observance of the Sabbath day as being an essential element to the health of the local church and the individual Christian. And this passage brings that out as we see the Sabbath day used as the symbol, a type for the eternal rest of God. And I want to focus on just a couple of points. First, the Sabbath observance is a command not an option for the Christian. All disputes should be settled when we see that the Sabbath principle is included in the moral law. And that is bolstered by the fact that it is a creation ordinance. 
It is not a command that was given for one dispensation or to one particular ethnic group of people. It is a command that was given to all of mankind for the duration of life on this planet. And then it will be replaced by the ultimate rest in eternity with God. The pattern from creation to the time of Christ was to work six days and rest on the seventh. The Sabbath observant was a seventh-day observance. But with the completed work of Christ, the pattern changed, but the principle did not. It is still one day in seven, but the day changed to the first day of the week. The pattern for the church in the New Covenant is to start the week by resting in Christ and when working for six days. This is clear from Scripture and apostolic example. When Jesus came... He did not abolish the Sabbath, he fulfilled it in the Lord's day. Therefore, Sunday can rightly be called the Christian Sabbath. Secondly, the Sabbath observance is a necessity for the Christian. Christ made this abundantly clear when he responded to the charges of breaking the Sabbath by healing a man. Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he's, and as he was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, I want you to think about those words for a minute. The Sabbath was made for man. In other words, the Sabbath serves a purpose for man, not the other way around, as Jesus says. If you understand that the Sabbath, if you understand the Sabbath and its purpose, then you will see that the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing for man, not a burden. The Pharisees were guilty of putting extra burdens on the Sabbath command, making the, the practice a ritualistic sham devoid of any meaning or purpose. But for the Christian, the Sabbath is a positive command, not a negative one. I want to quote, this is from Table Talk, October of 1999. The Sabbath is not only about what we may not do on Sundays, it is a reminder of what God has done. He made the world by the word of his power. He delivered his people and provided for all their needs. He brought them to the land of promise. He also gave the one who alone could bring the eternal rest we so desperately need and so infrequently pursue. The curse brought toilsome labor and strife, but God offers rest. So says Pastor Mike Renahan. God knows the state of our hearts. And we need to be reminded of his great works. And in his omniscience, he decided that the best way to do that was to set apart one day a week to focus on him. He knows that we can get so tied up in our own lives and our own problems that we would never just come to him on our own. So he made it easy for us. He made it a command. In his infinite wisdom, he has told us that we need this day. And if you are to grow in grace and knowledge, then you need this day. You can't do it on your own. Gathering together with the saints in corporate worship is essential for you, your health, and growth as a Christian. That is why we have fought so hard that through the pandemic that we meet. We didn't do it perfectly, but we're, <laughs> we were striving to make sure that these doors are open for you. It's the benefit that God has given to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. So another question then, how should we observe the Sabbath day? 
I'm just going to read from section 8 of chapter uh, chapter 22 of the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is our confession, and this is what we hold to. Men keep the Sabbath holy to the Lord when having duly prepared their hearts and settled their mundane affairs beforehand. For the sake of the Lord's command, they set aside all works, words, and thoughts that pertain to their worldly employment and recreations and devote the whole of the Lord's day to the public and private exercises of God's worship and to duties of necessity and mercy. Notice the confession doesn't give a list of do's and don'ts for Sabbath observance. Neither does our Constitution nor the Church Covenant. And you're not going to get a list from the elders either. You can do this, you can't do that. That would be too easy to lapse into the era of Phariseeism if we would try to do that. But if you understand what the Sabbath is, the symbol of the rest in God, and if you understand that it is an absolute necessity for your Christian growth, then you should be seeking ways to observe it from your heart to please your Savior. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, and honorable, and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now again, this was not an apologetic for keeping the Sabbath. I just wanted to throw that in since we came to it as an example, as a symbol. Let me add one more thing. The Sabbath is not a list of don'ts. We should come to the Sabbath as, I can worship. What can I do on the Sabbath that would please my Savior and call the day a delight? You know, Eric Liddell was looked upon as a fanatic even in his day. Even the Prince of Wales tried to talk him in a personal visit from the Prince of Wales to try to talk him into running on the Sabbath day. But he stood firm on what he believed. And he believed that it would violate the command of his Lord and Savior to compete on the Sabbath. And God honored his stand, by the way. He wound up running in two other races. He won a gold for the 400 meters and a bronze for the 200 meter. He also earned the respect of even his critics for his commitment to his principles. But this was only a preliminary test for this young man. After he graduated from college, he went to China as a missionary. He served there during the Japanese occupation in World War II, and he was imprisoned for helping the wounded soldiers. He refused to listen to the orders of the occupying army and chose instead to follow the commands of his Lord to help those in need. He was arrested and sent to a prison camp where he died of a brain tumor in 1945. The Stan Liddell took on the Sabbath was represented, representative of his commitment to Christ in all of life. 
He was one who was continually striving to enter his rest. Let me ask you a question. In 1924, when he refused to win, who, was, who won the 100 meters? I bet nobody here knows. So many people remember Eric Liddell for not running. How do you observe the Sabbath day is not the determining factor in your salvation. Salvation is the free gift of God. But how you approach the day speaks volumes to your commitment to Christ. Is this day a burden for you? In practice, is this the Lord's day or is it your day? How easy it is to roll over a Sunday morning, pull the covers back up and say, I'm going to sleep until noon. I'd be lying if I didn't say I wasn't tempted to do that a few times myself. <laughs> it is my prayer that you would consider this day to be a delight that you would strive to keep it holy. And it is my prayer that you all would not take your salvation for granted, but to diligently strive to enter the rest of God. As the writer to Hebrews said, do not harden your hearts. Today, it was Augustine who said, my heart, Lord, does not rest until it rests in thee. Let's pray. Father, once again we bow before you and we thank you and praise you for the blessings you've given to us in your Son. Thank you for this day. Thank you that you and your wisdom have given us this Sabbath day. For we know, Father, left to ourselves, we would never choose to, uh, to, to take a day out of our own time. But, Father, I do pray that you would teach all of us how to observe this day to please you and that we would call it a delight. I pray, Father, for anyone here today who doesn't know you, that today they would see their own sin, see their own sinfulness, that you would soften their heart, take away their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh, that they might repent and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.